So I'm sure you guys all recognize that uh, piece of music that, that uh, Donna and Ann played during the offertory, right? I heard a lot of you singing it, right? Uh, it's, it's a piece that Walter and Linda actually uh, requested for today, uh, and one that they told me is played regularly, I think every Sunday at your church back up north, right? Yeah, played regularly at their home church, uh, Let There Be Peace on Earth. And that actually made the perfect segue into today's sermon because peace both vertically with God and horizontally with our neighbors is the theme of our Lord's next beatitude today in our continuing look at the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you bring your Bible to church with you, open it to Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to be reading the first nine verses. So listen for the voice of the Spirit. Seeing the crowds, he, of course, meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Father God, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, for these beatitudes that we've had an opportunity to uh, to go through piece by piece, and we ask, Lord, that you continue to write them on our hearts, that you would uh, build them together into our lives, and you'd help us recognize, Father, uh, how they fit together, not as things that we have to do to earn your salvation, but as things that we can know and we can point to and look to uh, as members of your kingdom here on earth, and we thank you uh, for all that you're about to teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, unfortunately, uh, unless you've been living under a rock lately, you realize that our world is a hotbed of continual armed conflict. Uh, one source I, I read with the National Council on Foreign Relations said there are at least 24 critically significant armed conflicts going on in the world right now today as we sit here. And that's a lot considering there's only seven continents. Right? In fact, it left one cynic to remark that peace is merely the moment when nations take time to reload. And of course, now here at home, the domestic terrorist attacks, um, illegal immigration allowed by our president, uh, increases in, in crime and lawlessness abetted by Democrat-appointed district attorneys have convinced us that we're not safe even within our own cities and towns. And to make matters even a little more personal, even if we, you know, we could isolate ourselves from everything out there, the truth is that this life in which we live is rarely ever one of communal peace or financial peace, or family peace, to say nothing at all of internal, personal, emotional peace. And yet it's into the midst of this world so filled with violence and unrest that Jesus sends his disciples, he sends us as ministers of peace, saying to us this morning, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And in order to do that, in order to, to be that, to be individuals that make peace, we need to understand what this peace really is, and for that we have to go back to the source, right? And look at the biblical definition of the word and at how Jesus' original audience would have understood what he meant. 
And when we do that, when what we're going to see is that he would have meant a whole lot more than just the absence of war. And I think one of the best places, one of maybe the earliest examples of the idea of peace from Scripture comes to us from Leviticus 26, verse 6, where God promises his people that in the promised land, he says, I will grant peace, shalom in Hebrew, in the land, and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. And I'll remove wild beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. Isn't that a beautiful thought? But you know that Hebrew word shalom was not just the idea of personal physical peace in one geographic spot because God went even further with it and promised to his people a future universal savior who would be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, sar shalom, prince of peace, who would, in the words of Isaiah 26, keep in perfect peace and shalom, shalom, those whose hearts and minds trusted in him. And you guys from Wednesday night Bible study class, right? You know about repetitions in Hebrew scripture, right? We've talked about that before. Because remember, ancient Hebrew writers write a whole lot like I do with one long run-on sentence and not a lick of punctuation. Uh, at least they had an excuse that they didn't have any to use. But it also meant they couldn't use exclamation points and they couldn't use italics or brackets or quotation marks to emphasize a point. So they used repetition. And they doubled up words to denote the superlative, the, the ultimate of something. And so in this case, shalom, shalom, the most peaceful of peace. And so that idea was very important to the people of God right from the beginning. And it was why when two Jewish men would greet each other in Jesus' day, they exchanged the greeting shalom or peace. But of course, we know from those verses that we just read that what they meant was a whole lot more than I just hope you don't have any armed conflicts today. Right? So the idea of peace for them was obviously more than just the absence of war. Rather, it expressed a desire that the person they were greeting would have all the righteousness and all the goodness that God could give them. Or, or in other words, as one commentator said, as the desiring God's highest good for you. Which ultimately points us right back to the fact, just like we've seen with all the other Beatitudes, that our ultimate blessedness, our highest happiness, can only originate with God. One author said of this, men are without peace because they are without God, the source of peace. He says our God is the God of peace. And Jesus Christ, his son, the prince of peace, is the manifestation of it as the Holy Spirit applies and supplies the peace of God to our lives. And he ends the quote by saying, so the God of peace sent the prince of peace who gives the spirit of peace to bring about the fruit of peace. And if you and I are to be peacemakers, we must know God and draw upon his supply of righteousness because, listen to this, peace without righteousness is just a truce with sin. And there's just so much in that quote. Like, we could take that and, and pull that apart forever. I love, especially love that line, the God of peace sent the prince of peace who gives the spirit of peace to bring about the fruit of peace. I love that. But, but that thought that really blew me away when I read this earlier, the, earlier in the week was, that peace without righteousness is just a truce with sin. And, and that just made so much sense to me. Because as another commentator said, the truest enemy of peace is sin. And that really gets right at the heart of the matter. Because whether it's on a, the global stage or just sitting around the back porch steps, sin infects everything. Everything. 
Like right now, who, who would have ever imagined or predicted another hot war on European soil after the devastation of two previous world wars, right? Wars supposedly to end all wars, and yet, j- just think for a minute, like, what, what happened to the whole peace charter of the League of Nations? You guys remember the League of Nations from high school civics class? Uh, it was founded in 1920 by the Paris Peace Conference to end World War I. What happened to it? Well, they dissolved in 1939 at the beginning of World War II. And then in 1945, we got the United Nations, which isn't doing so hot at the moment, uh, and only on life support, giving us two perfect examples that even when the whole world supposedly claims to want it, peace is always just out of reach. It's always just out of reach. And why is that? What, what's, what's the problem? We, and we could line up a lot of reasons for the wars, I guess, you know, we could cite German nationalism for the first two world wars or Putin's aggression for the one we're trying to get deeper into now. But, but for all of them, right, we could cite uh, human greed that feeds the industrial war machine or competing political ideologies. But all of those things and whatever other ones you want to toss in there all bubble up to the same answer. And the answer is sin. Right? Uh, scripture states it this way. Jesus said, uh, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that wars in your members? Pretty clear. And so ultimately, there will never be an end to wars or the rumors of wars until that day when the hearts of all men and women are changed by the preaching of the gospel. Or or the future day when King Jesus is reigning on earth like he is in heaven. And guys, that day is coming. But until it does, his delay does not give us permission to stop seeking peace and actively playing a part in bringing about its realization. Because see, that, that's, that's the flip side of Jesus' beatitude today, that we receive our peace from God, but then it's our job to take that peace and to work it out in the world in whatever way he's laid out for us to do that. It's why Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So that means it's something active. It's not passive. Because here's what being a peacemaker is not. It's not being a doormat. Just like meekness did not mean weakness in the earlier beatitude we looked at, peacemaking is not limp-wristed softness or passive impotence. No, rather, it's, it's kind of like what Ronald Reagan used to say, you know, peace through strength. Right? Because peace is not found in appeasement. And history has proven that, right? Proven that when peace is pursued at any price, peace is precisely what you will not get. You history buffs, again, might remember at the outbreak of hostilities in Europe in 1937 when uh, Germany invaded Czechoslovakia. British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain went to Germany to talk to Hitler about the prospect of peace, and he, he basically just gave Hitler his blessing to take territory he had already taken. And in return, he got a signed treaty that wasn't worth the paper it was written on. Also, that he could fly back to England and declare that he had achieved peace for our time. Until the next year when Germany invaded Poland. And the world learned the hard way that peace is not found in compromising on truth. Even if that truth is unpleasant. Maybe especially if that truth is unpleasant. Like the example of our Lord cleansing the temple in John chapter 2. If you remember, um, beginning in verse 13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those 
who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And he made a whip of cords to drive them out of the temple with the oxen and sheep. And he poured out the coins of the money changers. And he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Don't forget, this is not part of the sermon. We talked about this before. Remember, you know that old bracelet used to say, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Remember, one of the options is flipping tables and making a whip. Okay? Uh, but again, just like last week, Jesus wasn't so very subtle here, was he? No. And also, just like last week, he found out very quickly that telling the truth will not always be extremely popular, particularly the truths of Scripture. Because when the Word of God is preached truthfully, it, it doesn't always bring peace. Sometimes it makes folks angry. And while that's not the exact intent, the preaching of the Word of God is intended to evoke a reaction. It's intended to provoke a response, to shake people out of perhaps their false sense of peace in their relationships with other people, and more importantly, in their relationship with God. And so, as I've said before, if you can hear the Word of God preached here Sunday after Sunday here in this church, and it never once provokes a reaction from you, if your toes don't ever feel stepped on or your conscience pricked or your assumptions challenged, either I'm not preaching or you're not listening. And I've made enough people mad to be pretty sure I'm preaching. Because real, lasting, godly peace is not a laissez-faire, you-do-you attitude. Peace looks at a situation squarely in the face and it calls it for what it is. And it seeks to do something about it in every area of life, but especially in the Christian life. And to live that out, we've got to be willing to be holy troublemakers and unapologetic defenders of the faith and lovingly offensive with the message of the gospel and call a sin a sin in whatever form it takes because it's a matter of life and death, of eternal life and death. And you see, that's why it's so dangerous to listen to messages that never make their listeners uncomfortable. Little sermonettes from guys like Joel Osteen, who by his own admission doesn't ever talk about sin from his Lakewood Church pulpit. In fact, in one Larry King live interview, if you've seen this, Larry King asked Osteen if sinner was a word he ever used. And this is, a, this is his reply. It's a quote. He said, I don't ever use it. I never thought about it. Uh, but I probably don't. He said, but most people already know what they're doing wrong. When I get them to church, I want to tell them that you can change. And there can be a difference in your life. So I don't go down the road of condemning. And, and I'll, I'll give them that. I, I completely agree that people do not need to be verbally beaten to a pulp with the word of God, right? We don't carry around a 10-pound Bible to whack people over the heads with it. But at the same time, it should genuinely convict us. Convict us that without Jesus Christ, we aren't just wrong, but we're damned. And that the who that we're ultimately at war with is God. And if you choose that battle, you're going to lose. Big time. Because the Bible says the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And that God is angry with the wicked every day. You don't hear that verse very often in mega churches, but it's in the Bible and it's true. And if you've been reading ahead a little bit, it's why Jesus is going to tell us before the end of this chapter, before the end of Matthew chapter 5, he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown in prison. And so Jesus here is comparing the, the spiritual stakes of an unresolved conflict with God to the civil 
legal stakes of an unresolved lawsuit, but in either case, if you're in the wrong, you're in danger of judgment. And he's saying that the only proper response to be, uh, to give, be given that knowledge, that awareness of your spiritual condition of guilt is to be moved to confession and repentance of our sin. That's the only thing that results in real, lasting biblical peace. Not only for ourselves, but so that we can be workers of peace in the lives of others. One commentator said of this, the, the one who does not belong to God through Jesus Christ can neither have peace nor be a peacemaker. God can only work peace through us after he's worked peace in us. God can only work peace through us after he's worked peace in us. And once that's happened, having established this peace with God, we then assume the responsibility of actively working to reconcile others to him and to one another. And to make every effort to get out the good news that God has made the first move in this cosmic battle to reestablish communication with us with the offenders, with the, with the aggressors, and to lay the groundwork for reconciliation that God gave the life of his son to procure. And to proclaim that a, tr- a peace has been made, that a treaty has been concluded. I'll give you just a quick example, I guess, in keeping with our World War theme. You know, at the end of World War II, when the United States signed a peace treaty with Japan, there were some holdouts in the South Pacific Islands who either didn't get the message or simply didn't believe that the war was over. And so they continued to fight a war that had already officially ended. And the last officially confirmed Japanese holdout, and this is going to be a picture of the actual guy, came out of the jungle in the Philippines to surrender in 1974. 20, 29 years after the war had ended. Okay, But sadly, in the same way, there are people in this world today waiting to be reached with the gospel, some right in our own backyards, but isolated in their own little worlds and still following their own instincts and fighting against God and church. It's our job to reach them. That's why 2 Corinthians 5 says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to him through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You see, salvation is God's business, but offering it is our business. And it means simply this. And if you come on Sunday nights, Gary will even tell you how to do it. Telling other people the bad news of sin followed by the good news of the gospel and encouraging them to turn to Christ in repentance and in faith and encouraging them to accept God's terms of peace. That's the work we're called to. It's one of the reasons that we're still here, right? So we're here to worship God, yes, of course, but not just that. Not just to be filled and enlightened on a Sunday morning ourselves and then take that light home that we're given and hide it. It's not to be here to be unburdened of your own troubles and be given a big dose of God's peace and then go out and be an undercover Christian no different than the world, but rather is to take what we've been given here and proudly and peacefully wear our faith in such a way that no one or nothing could ever shake it from us. And in a way that attracts not only, or rather that not attracts self-serving admiration, but that gives a life-saving witness to everyone you meet. Because the Bible says, when you were dead in sin and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. 
having canceled the charge against us and our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. They're triumphing over the world and the flesh and the devil so that now we can transfer all of our troubles to God directly in prayer and attain his peace. A peace, guys, that should be so obvious for others to see in us, even when we're in the midst of life's battles. The kind of peace that only a believer can model in a time of crisis. A peace the Apostle Paul says will surpass all understanding because it's Christ's peace. The same Christ who said, peace I leave you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Brothers and sisters, the peace of God is not something you can manufacture. You can't earn it. But if you got it, it's your duty to share it. So will you do that this week? Or will you just passively watch the world go to hell while you complain about the process? Are you willing that even one could be lost that you know in your heart that Christ is leading you to lead to him? I hope that you won't. I hope I won't. Because we've been given a gift that we need to share. And there are so many who desperately need to hear it. And if you're in that group, if that's, if that's you, that part of the group that needs to hear, and maybe you're hearing this message and you're realizing for the very first time that you are in fact outside of Christ, and maybe you're realizing too that you like it that way because you want to go your own way and you want to do your own thing. I need you to know that this shalom, this peace that we're talking about, uh, is not for you. You can't know it, you don't have it, and you won't receive it unless or until the Spirit of God moves you to repent and believe the gospel. And so I say to you today in Jesus' name, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, but be adopted into the family. And in the words of Jesus, become a true son or daughter of God and be at peace. And then, and only then, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, don't leave here today still at war with God. Amen? Let's pray. God of peace, who sent your son to reconcile the world to yourself, bring peace to this house today, Lord. Conquer every heart of unbelief. Destroy the works of the enemy. Enliven the morale of your saints and reign in glory here, Lord, until every knee bows to your son our King Jesus, our Sar Shalom, in whose name we pray. Amen.